0: Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Morning everyone. Great to be with you this morning, opening up Matthew's Gospel. I'm one of the pastors here at Salt Church, uh, so welcome. If you're new, uh, I'd love to meet you this morning. Uh, why don't we pray now as we come to God's Word and hear what God wants to say to us. Let's, let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, please uh, still our hearts and minds now as we uh, look into Matthew's Gospel. Lord, please speak to us by your Word, by your Spirit. Grow us uh, to be people that please you in every way. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus in all his glory and wonder. Help us to live for him as our King, and we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'd be very surprised if you missed this. Last week, uh, one of Australia's greatest sporting heroes died of a heart attack. Uh, Shane Warne, uh, he was only 52 years of age uh, and an incredible sporting hero, yeah, for Australia. Um, just loads of accolades of, across his sporting career. Uh, They reckon for what he did for cricket, his leadership, what he did for the game, people are comparing him to Don Bradman. That's a massive call, isn't it? I'll let you guys decide whether that's right. Uh, But but it's interesting, uh, later this month, planned in his home state of Victoria, is a state funeral for Shane Warne. Uh, That's quite remarkable uh, that we're giving him a state funeral. Uh, That is going to be massive um, I don't know how many the MCG holds. I don't know whether it'll be full, but is it 90,000 people? Imagine going, your funeral being 90,000 people. It would be publicised, telecast all over the world. I was just reflecting on it. It's really interesting, isn't it? Who we idolise in our culture? Uh, for us as Aussies, I reckon it's often the sporting greats, isn't it? Uh, we love our sport. Uh, we love someone who performs to excellence in their sport. And it only dawned to me this week that Shane Warne's nickname was The King. Isn't that fascinating? As Aussies, we nickname him The King. I mean, isn't it, we're we're today going to talk about another king. In in Roman times, they called The Emperor The King. Here we are, we call a spin bowler The King. Uh, We often worship people who have incredible talent on the field, and yet it's got to be said, hasn't it, that they often let us down miserably off the field, and sometimes they let us down miserably uh, in their character on the field as well. It's going to be said, isn't it, that for all his tar- talent and all the great work he did for charity as well, Shane Warne's life was a mess. Uh, he was a serial adulterer. He was a womanizer. He was a-, a gambler. He was an abuser of alcohol and drugs. He was a cheat. And I- I don't think any of that's being unfair to someone who's no longer with us. In fact, it's actually very well known, isn't it? It's actually something that he was... It's many of, that, many of that, those things that he was even proud of. Um, for some people, they'd say, actually, that's part of his greatness. That's why we loved him. Well, here's the question this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, how do you engage with our world without embracing its immorality? How do you engage with the world without embracing its immorality? We, there's so much, there is so much immorality in our world, uh, we can't remove ourselves from the world, that's not what Jesus called us to do. So how do you engage with the world without embracing its immorality? That's the question for us this morning. So uh, leave your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 14, have it open uh, in front of you. Uh, Because we're going to see here the immorality of another king, King Herod, Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, It actually begins with some historical details. Uh, It's it's another one of those points in the Bible, in the Gospels, where you realise we're not dealing with fairy tale. This is real people, real historical details uh, in the biography of Jesus' life told by Matthew. Herod, the Tetrarch, is on view. Uh, Here he is. This is, this is a photo of him. Can you believe it? We've got a photo of him. Um, he's the ruler over Galilee in the, north, in the northern part of Israel. And he's actually a very paranoid king, a very paranoid ruler. See, he heard about the miracles of Jesus. Uh, he has a very strong opinion about Jesus. He's actually convinced that Jesus is no ordinary man. We're not just talking about a good teacher here. Jesus is someone who did miraculous things. Uh, but notice in those first few verses, what is he thinking? Here is John the Baptist, who's risen from the dead. John the Baptist has come back as a ghost or embodied Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist has come back to haunt me because I murdered John the Baptist. Uh, I think that's where verse 3 takes us. A bit confusing, isn't it? There's a flashback to understand, what are we talking about here? What went on between Herod and Herod? and John the Baptist. What's the backstory? Let me tell you the backstory. Herod is married, uh, but he has his eyes on another woman. He has his eyes on a woman called Herodias. And who was Herodias? Herodias was actually Herod's niece. Uh, And she was also married to Herod's brother. And so they devise a plan. Uh, Herod divorces his wife. Herodias divorces her husband and they marry one another. That's how it goes. But then, it's not that quite straightforward, is it? Along comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist speaks out. Look at verse 4. He says to the king, it's not lawful for you to have her. It's not right that you've married her. Let's, uh, let's think into John the Baptist for a moment. Um, You remember him when we, uh, early in Matthew's Gospel, if you've been reading through, or when we went through that part uh, last year. Who's John the Baptist? He's a prophet of God. Uh, He's the one preparing God's people for the coming Messiah, for the coming King. He's actually calling people to repent, to turn back to God. He's saying, here is God's law. Here's how to get ready for the coming King, Jesus. And so what does he do? He actually calls Herod, he has the guts to call Herod to, to repent. I guess he thinks if it's good enough for the people, it's good enough for the king. In fact, it needs to start with the king. If the nation's going to repent, the king needs to repent. But here, here's a question for you. In what way do you think we're meant to be like John the Baptist, if you're a follower of Jesus? We, we actually wrestled this question through a bit this week in our small group. Now, is it his fashion sense. (laughs) Do you notice? Uh, Incredibly unique, would you say? I hope it's not his fashion sense. I reckon there's two things that stand out about John the Baptist that we should be emulating. But there's also one really key difference. I reckon the first thing is we ought to imitate John the Baptist and his clarity about immorality. Uh, Clarity about immorality is the first point. So... We live in a culture where the lines of morality are seriously blurred. Uh, We live in a culture where it feels like it's rapidly... The the definition of what is moral or immoral is rapidly changing. Uh, It feels like we're at that point uh, that Isaiah chapter 5 speaks about. The prophet Isaiah, way back, he said, There's coming a day when people will call evil good and good evil. Now, there's probably lots of examples that are going through your head at this point. Uh, But let me give you three examples. One, sex outside of marriage, uh, not considered by many at all to be immoral. Uh, Homosexual practice, a sin uh, in God's sight, along with heterosexual sin, and yet celebrated in our culture. And even now to the point where amongst Christians it feels controversial to say that homosexual practice is sin. Thirdly, abortion. Has become normalised. Now, depending on how old you are, uh, there was a time when those things, even in our community, were considered immoral. But if you say those things are immoral today, you're regarded as narrow, as bigoted, as intolerant. You know, those three examples actually stick in my mind because before I came to Wollongong, I was pastoring a church on the Central Coast. We were meeting in a school and I remember our, our church getting a letter from the Department of Education representatives that explicitly said that if you speak out about any of those topics, you risk uh, being kicked out of the school. So in our culture, even the word immorality feels old-fashioned, doesn't it? We don't actually use that word very much anymore. Uh, we don't use the word sin and in morality, we use the words mistakes, errors of judgment, regrets. Our culture's actually shifted massively, hasn't it? Our, our culture said, we're not listening to God and his word, we're not taking our authority from him. We're actually going to determine what's right and wrong. But as Christians, I reckon like John the Baptist, we should have a clarity about right and wrong. We should have a clarity about right and wrong which actually comes from God's word. Uh, So for us, right and wrong is not a matter of public opinion. Sometimes it'll be popular, sometimes it won't. Sometimes uh, it'll be hated. But where do we learn what is right and wrong? We actually learn it from God. Uh, Even when God's word is out of step with our culture. Now I reckon that that brings me to the second point about how we imitate John and it should be an obvious one. That takes great courage, doesn't it? John the Baptist had enormous courage to speak. There he is willing to stand, willing to confront the most powerful, most influential leaders of the day and call them to repent, call them to turn back. And and it raises the question, how do you get that kind of courage? Where Where does John the Baptist get his courage from? And it's very clear, isn't it, that John fears God more than he fears people, yeah? Uh, Do you remember back in John chapter 10, you might have read this, Jesus says, don't fear people, don't even fear the person who can kill you, fear God who can throw you into hell. And John the Baptist gets that. He trusts God, he fears God. And that's often... A struggle for us, isn't it? We actually fear people more than God, which kind of makes us wishy-washy about sin. It actually causes us to be silent about sin or you know, not speak up when we should. I, I want to say a bit more about that but let me say something about the way in which I reckon we're not like John the Baptist. What's, what's the thing that we're not like John the Baptist? You should notice that John the Baptist is an old covenant prophet, Uh, He's actually pointing people back to God's law in the Old Testament. Uh, He actually had a a particular role in the salvation plan of God. Uh, We don't have that same relationship with our community. Uh, Our nation is not Israel. Our nation is not the people of God. Uh, Our leaders are not the leaders of God's people in the same way that, that Herod was over Israel. And so I reckon that informs us about how we take courage to speak. Um, so it starts, it starts with us as Christians, doesn't it? For us as a church, I reckon it means it's courage to speak to one another. It's courage to call one another to repent. It's actually, what does Paul uh, say in Ephesians chapter 4, it's speaking the truth in love. It's actually not being silent when we see one another caught in sin, but actually calling one another to live the life that God's called us to, to live, um, calling one another to see the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy in Jesus and to keep walking in repentance and faith. But I reckon courage also means we speak to our city. We speak to our city about Jesus. Uh, we actually, what's, what's, the, what's the message that we speak to our community? There's lots of things we could say, but it's the message of hope and the message of forgiveness of Jesus. It's actually the message, turn from your idols, turn to the true and living God before it's too late. Uh, it's actually warning people, there is a judgment coming. It's actually warning people, hope and salvation are now found in Jesus. Now, I'm sure there's lots of other things as church leaders we can be saying um, that we, as we speak into our community. There, there is a prophetic voice, I think, that we can speak into our community. But that takes great wisdom, doesn't it? That's often abused, I think, and often, we often get that wrong. But our main message is not to be moral campaigners. Uh, we're not the moral police, if you like, of our community. Our, our mission is not to make a more moral society. Because a more moral society is not a safe society, isn't it? A more moral society is still a society facing God's judgment. It's still a society that's out of step with God, facing God's judgment. A more moral society still needs Jesus, still needs to be rescued. We'll come back to the passage with me. Um, Here's John speaking with clarity and courage and he's prepared to face the consequences of opposing Herod. Have a look. Uh, Herod's Herod's way of silencing him, verse 5, he actually wants to kill John. That's how, how much heat there is in the room. But what's the problem for Herod? He can't afford the, the political fallout. He knows he'll be incredibly unpopular. Uh, the people regarded John as a prophet. And he doesn't want to lose the popular vote. But his wife Herodias is not content to merely imprison John. She really wants him dead. And so the opportunity comes at a feast, at a banquet. It's actually Herod's birthday. Uh, Now, Amy stole my thunder. Speaking of birthdays, (laughs) uh, we had this great birthday celebration on Friday. and I've got photos, there. see? There we go. Let's show some photos from Friday night. So this is is one of the first postcards that Salt sent out for their first Sunday, is my understanding on the 11th of March, so 10 years ago, uh, to, the, to the weekend, um, to invite Wollongong to come and hear about Jesus, to become disciples of Jesus. Uh, and there's a photo of our AGM, and there's a photo of our birthday cake, which was massive, and yes, full of 100% sugar. So there it is. But back to a different celebration. Herod's birthday. Here it is on offer, uh, chapter 14, What's going on? All the celebrities are there. This is the social elite uh, of Israel, the sports stars, the important business leaders, the politicians. You can imagine that's the feel, the, the who's who are there are they, as they gather for this feast. And Herodias' um, Herodias's daughter dances for the guests. Now, you're not told what kind of dance it is, but you can read between the lines, can't you? In verse 6, it pleased Herod so much. You actually get the feeling that here's another side of Herod's immoral character. He's actually sexually aroused by his own stepdaughter. And he's probably a little bit drunk and those two things often go together, don't they? Drunkenness that leads to debauchery. And as a result, Herod offers an oath to give her whatever she wants. And so this is where Herodias gets what she wants, uh, where she's uh, we see her sinful manipulation of her husband, her daughter says to her, Give him get him, sorry, get him to give you the head of John the Baptist on a platter. you know if I can have anything there's what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and there is Herod trapped, forced into a corner, he wants Uh, He gets to think highly of him. That's He's an immoral man, but he wants people to think highly of him. Look at verse 9. It says, The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. How brutal. How godless. It's incredible, isn't it? Herod knew John was a prophet of God, but he's not, afraid of, he's not afraid of John the Baptist. He's not afraid of God. He's actually the very opposite of John, isn't he? John feared God, not people. I reckon Herod fears people. He fears, he's concerned about public opinion more than the wrath of God. And of course, Herod uh, does the same to Jesus. Later on, he'll, he'll uh, team up with Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders, and they'll kill Jesus again because of public pressure. And so there's another reminder, isn't it, about how, how you'll sit with those in authority, that you won't necessarily be liked, uh, you won't necessarily be popular. In fact, uh, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? They killed John the Baptist, they killed Jesus, they killed the Apostles. And what does the Apostle Paul say? Uh, have a look at this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the nature of it. Now think back to Herod's Feast for a moment. There is something deeply attractive about Herod's Feast, isn't there? Isn't that why so many in our culture gravitate to the Feast of Herod? Because uh, what, what's going on at the Feast of Herod? There's, there's great food, there's, there's fine wine, uh, you're part of the social elite, you're in the in crowd, there's beautiful people there, there's music, dance, sex... It's really about delighting the senses in every sense. But there's also deception there. It's deceptive. Because so often what comes with that culture, we know what comes with that culture, don't we? It's the temptation for indulgence, the temptation for immorality. Uh, So often with that culture comes a toxic culture of the way we treat people, a very warped value system and with that culture also comes an insecurity. I don't know whether you've noticed this, that there you are, part of the in crowd, but deeply insecure. What if I lose favour? What if the social elite turn against me? What if I'm discarded from that group? Where am I then? There's actually great fear at that banquet. And I was, I was thinking about this week, it's a, it's a remarkable uh, contrast to the feast that's coming up in the next uh, part of the chapter. We haven't read it. And we're going to dig into it next week. But from verse 13, it's Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus has retreated and Jesus will provide a meal. He's actually, uh, he's in grief. He's escaping Herod's paranoia. He's, he's followed by 5,000 people. So it's a much bigger banquet, if you like. It's a king, Jesus, who has compassion on his people, who deeply loves them, who actually takes five loaves and two fish and feeds this massive group of people. And it's actually a really basic meal. It's it's not a huge three-course meal. And notice if you flick down to verse 20 what happens. They all ate and were satisfied. That's the nature of Jesus meal. Massive contrast to Herod's social elite party, isn't it? Jesus meal has a huge crowd. I imagine that would have had many uh, social misfits in it, outcasts. People get felt welcomed, felt loved, felt cared for physically and spiritually. It's actually a picture of the church. Deep, loving community where everyone is welcomed, where everyone is cared for physically and spiritually, You know, as you think about banquets, we love banquets, we love that social um, atmosphere. The Bible keeps pointing us to the banquet to come, the heavenly banquet. Uh, When Jesus returns, it's described as a banquet with Jesus. That on that last day, there'll be fine wine, there'll be fine dining, there'll be no end to the luxury. There'll be rich fellowship, there won't be fear. There won't be insecurity, there won't be compromise, there won't be injustice. But that's the future. Now is not the time for indulgence. Actually, when you think about this passage, now's the time to choose which king you're going to be part of. Who are you going to give your allegiance to? Which gathering are you going to be part of? Which which meal do you want to participate in? And I reckon Jesus would want us to change our appetites, to, to, to stop being tempted towards Herod's immorality and injustice, that kind of feast, to actually despise that feast, and actually bring our hearts, to appreciate, to love Jesus, His provision, his teaching, his promise, the security with him, the love with him. That's where Jesus wants to. That's where Jesus is taking us in the heavenly banquet. But we're tempted to Herod's banquet. Well, have a look, have a look at this picture. Uh, it's, it's parents taking their sons, and they're all uh, young boys, teenage boys, uh, to have their photo taken with Shane Warne. And, and on one level, you, you look at that photo and you go, what a great photo. It's, it kind of makes sense. Uh, he's an incredibly successful... Uh, sportsmen and they want their sons to bowl like Shane Warne and who wouldn't but on another level it's horrifying isn't it? If that's the man that you want your son to emulate it's it's actually quite concerning that we would embrace that kind of immoral lifestyle like the lifestyle of Herod. I reckon it's a real warning to us to to actually think really carefully about Who do we esteem? Who do we hold up and honour in our community? Uh, It's it's not just with the sporting world, isn't it? It can be musical abilities or someone who's powerful or someone who's wealthy, um, someone who's a celebrity. Uh, But actually what we want to be doing, we want to be esteeming integrity and godliness and following Jesus and loving Jesus. And actually talk about kids, teaching kids to... That's who you want to be like, the godly man, the godly woman. I take it uh, that's precisely why uh, we had it read out for us in 2 Timothy, while the Bible just keeps talking to us about character in leadership. While we take character so seriously, like in all our leaders across SALT, when you think about our next-gen leaders, if you think about people responsible for our kids and youth, we actually want them to be people of godliness, of character so that our kids go, that's what it looks like to be a godly woman. That's what it looks like to be a godly man. That's what's valuable in life. We'll come back to the question we started with, how do we engage with our world without embracing its immorality? Here's some things I think we've seen, here's some things to take away with you this morning. I reckon the first one is, it's not about capitulation. We're not to give in, we're not to be tempted into Herod's Feast. That, that's a real possibility for us and we need to keep res- resisting that. Um, secondly, we want to be clear about sin. We actually want to, want to be the kind of people who know God and know his, his heart, know our boundaries when it comes to our behaviour. Uh, we're not the people who blur the lines. Um, we sit with Jesus and live for him. I reckon it means not being silent uh, That's the temptation, isn't it? As we fear people, uh, we give way to fear. We, we don't speak up when we should. So it's courage to speak, uh, courage to speak the gospel of Jesus, hope, love, forgiveness. Uh, occasionally we'll, we'll speak that prophetic word. Um, but we're not the Old Testament prophet like John the Baptist, where there is a difference. And we saw sort too. Of, we need to change our appetites we actually need to start thinking into how can we desire what Jesus desires? How can we lean into his sustaining power, his hev- look forward to his heavenly banquet, actually seek godliness uh, and godly role models, not just celebrities and sporting heroes. And then I put lastly, I reckon we need to do it together. It's got a tough living as, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus in a world that seems to have very different values as we Stand together and hold out the hope of Jesus. We need to we need to do it together. We need to be committed to it together. Well, I thought of I thought of another sporting hero, who we need to pray for. But I reckon it's a great example uh, of all these things. Uh, but so here he is here, Marnus Lebouchain. But actually, before we get to, to him, um, Natalie, my wife, was talking to me. In this, we were talking in the car on the way here about the sermon, uh, and she was saying to me that. Justin Langer uh, was an example of that, a Christian man, the Australian coach for the Australian cricket team uh, who got sacked. Um, Now they're not perfect men but a man who was committed Christian and actually said to the team, I want to push you in your ability as as sportsman but I actually want to push you on character and we need to fact check this one as well but Apparently, he said to the men, you need to be the kind of men that could marry my daughters. Your character is as important as your sporting ability. Now, that's really unusual, isn't it, in our, in our culture? Um, now, he got sacked. I don't know how much that had to do with him being Christian. But this guy, Manus, uh, I reckon is an example of that. He's a, he's a Christian man. He plays for Australia. He, his mum... Uh, This is a picture of his shoes. His mum used to write Bible verses on the soles, the inner soles of his boots as he went out to play. I don't know whether uh, she still does that. But what an awesome mum to say to her son, I want to encourage you as a cricketer, but I want to encourage you as a young man to follow Jesus, to know God, to love God. That's what matters. And that's why he's the Christian man he is today. In fact, let me read to you as we finish. This is what Marnus had to say uh, as he became aware of the dangers of placing all his hopes and dreams in his career. This is what he said. He said, sport is a fickle game and injuries play a big part. In the big scheme of things, what you're worth, what you put your value in, isn't out there on the pitch. It's internal and it's in Christ. We need to Pray for guys like that, don't we? We need to pray for ourselves, living for Jesus, loving Jesus, holding out hope to our world. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, His leadership, His integrity, His character, His willingness to go to the cross for us. Father, this morning as we've seen the life of John the Baptist, uh, a man who feared you, who loved you and loved the truth, uh, who pointed people to you. Uh, Father, thank you for his integrity. Thank you for his life. Help us as we think into our lives uh, to be people of courage, to be people of truth, uh, to, people, to be people who are clear on sin. Father, to be people who hold out forgiveness and hope in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, we, uh, we do find it difficult living in a culture of immorality, of different values, uh, a culture that has ignored you, has turned their back on you, uh, a culture that doesn't listen uh, to your word. Uh, Father, we do pray that we would be different. Uh, we do pray that we would be holding out hope and forgiveness, uh, that we would be... Um, people full of grace and love. Uh, So Lord, please help us with these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.